Good morning, Rolling Hills Church family. It is so great to be in our series, and I love what God's doing at Rolling Hills Franklin and Nolensville and Nashville and online. And so welcome. We have been in this series. We're studying the teachings of Jesus and seeing how he's calling us to be disciples and to follow him. We've been in Matthew chapter 5, and today we're moving into Matthew chapter 6. And we're a part of this long sermon that Jesus taught up on the mountain. And I'm standing here, right here on the kind of shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I mean, how cool is that, right? I mean, so this is the place where Jesus was teaching, where Jesus was doing so much of his ministry. I'm right here near Capernaum, uh, where Peter was called. And so this is kind of this town and this place. And you just get the image in your mind of Jesus teaching and pouring in. And he's teaching and he comes to this point in his teaching where he says, hey, I don't want you to be just like the Pharisees. And we talked last week about the, the difference between religion and relationship. But now Jesus gives some specific examples. And we're in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. And we'll be unpacking this today. But he gives these three examples. He talks about giving to the needy, you know, giving to the poor, you know, our, our tithe and how we give our money, how we're generous. He talks about prayer. We're going to dive into more of that today. And, and then he talks about fasting. And see, the religious leaders of the day, uh, they were doing it more for show, Right. And they would give to the needy when other people were watching. And, uh, you know, they were getting their own glory. And Jesus is going, hey, don't be like that, right? God sees, he knows. You do it out of a heart of love for God. You do it out of a heart of love for others. He's coming back to this theme of love. And, and then he talks about prayer. And, and the religious leaders of that day, many times they would pray so that everybody could hear them. And they used big words and, you know, they tried to make a, a statement. And he's like, no. Guys, be real, be simple. You're gonna see part of the Lord's prayer in this today. And then even fasting. They walk around and like, I'm fasting, right? You know, and with these faces that people will go, oh, you are so religious. And he's like, come on, no. Fasting is a time when you, when you withhold from food or whatever so that you can be closer to God. And when you have that urge, you pray. He's like, guys, God sees your heart. He wants that relationship with you. You know, sometimes we, we grow up and, and it almost like we're going through the motions, almost like we're just kind of doing religion, doing our faith. And, and God's going, no, I want you to be engaged. And Jesus says, as disciples, you're different. You're not Pharisees, right? We already got the religious. You are disciples. You are calling to follow me. Uh, a couple years ago, I was going to Moldova with one of our mission teams and I was getting on the plane and I always try to take a, like a little sleeping pill to, to sleep on the way over uh, to get to Moldova so that I'm ready to go when we get there. And I love going and I hope and pray at some point you get the opportunity to go and to serve. And, and I remember this year we, were, we flew from here to Newark and we were getting you know, ready to go. We taxied out and I thought, okay, here you go. I, I'm gonna go to sleep. I took my little pill and I laid down to go to sleep. And then whatever happened on the tarmac, but we had to go back into the gate. And so now here I am, I'm taking this little sleeping pill and now I'm like, ah, uh, you know, and I'm so tired and I'm getting off the plane. They put us on a new plane. And I just remember feeling like I was kind of sleepwalking. I was like, oh, uh, you know, I'm trying to stay awake. And, and I think about that sometimes that there's people out there who, who grew up, you know, going to church or grew up and they're just kind of going through the motions. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, you know, and it's just like, ah, uh, and there's not a joy, there's not a depth, there's not a richness, there's not an engagement. And Jesus is coming along to his disciples as he teaches them. And he says, hey guys, I want you to be different. I want you to be in love with God. I want you to be in love with others. I want you to make a difference. I want you to be fully alive and fully engaged. And so we're gonna see that difference, that contrast 
And I just ask all of us, we have to think, am I becoming more like a disciple or am I becoming more like a Pharisee? <laughs> am I just going through the motions in my life or am I really involved and really engaged? Let's unpack the scriptures this morning and see what God has to say to each one of us. Good morning, church. My name is Jacob. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rolling Hills. And my wife and I, we have a, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, all boys. And I know what you're thinking right off the bat. Oh, I, that's why he looks so tired. Um, no, no, no. I, I love parenting. It is, it is one of my greatest honors in my life. I love it. It is so much fun uh, hanging out with my boys, but it's also messy. There's a lot of crying involved, and sometimes they cry too. Um, but I love, I love it. I love it so much. It's my greatest honor. Because I love documentaries. And to me, sometimes watching these creatures grow up, it's kind of like watching a documentary. So I love the Planet Earth documentaries. And sometimes I think I'm in a Planet Earth documentary because it's like a study in human nature. So sometimes it's like, you know, I picture the narrator like, the human child loves to put things in his mouth he's not supposed to, you know. Or uh, when there's more than one human children, especially if they're related, they always fight with each other. And then the adult human has to step in and break it up. If you tell the child to do something, they will always do the opposite. It's like a, it's like a documentary in human nature. But what I love watching as I'm watching this documentary is watching them develop traits that we have as adults. They start to develop these traits. And one thing I've noticed in all three of my boys recently is their need for approval. Their need for approval. When I walk in the door in the afternoons, when I walk in the door, they run to me and they're like, Dad, Dad, look what I did. Dad, Dad, look at what I made. Or either, Dad, watch me do this. Did you see me? And what they need from me in that moment is my full attention. They need to know that I see them and that I approve of them. And what's going to happen eventually is they're going to be tempted to transfer later in life, transfer that need from approval off me as their father and on to other people. Eventually, they're going to they're be tempted to transfer their need for approval off me and to other people. And we all have that same temptation as well. At work, we may be tempted to do things in order to receive the approval of others. At school, we may be tempted. The reason we're doing this or that is so that we may be approved by others. Anytime humans gather together, anytime it's part of human nature, anytime there's a community of people together, there is a temptation to do things for the approval of others. Which means even here in this room, here at church, there's a possibility of us doing things for the approval of others. There's a possibility for us doing things for the approval of others. But this is true of here at church. It's true of work. It's true everywhere for us as human beings that living and longing for the approval of others is like chasing a mirage in the desert that will always disappear, always disappear when you get close. Because if you were in the desert, you would be thirsty for water, and what you think you see is water that will make you not thirsty anymore. But when you get there, it's gone. And in our heart, in our nature, we have the thirst for the need of approval. And if it's with others, once we get there, it will never quench that thirst. 
It is an itch that will never be scratched. Because let's say you do something and you get the approval from others. What is it like? You get one attaboy, one good job. Man, I wish I was like Jacob. You get five approvals from others. You know what your heart will tell you? Why didn't I get six? What about the seventh? Did I do something that, it, that, that didn't cause the seventh or eighth to happen? Our heart will never be quenched. And this is exhausting. But what Jesus tells us. In this passage, when we look at it, he says this is a great danger for us. But Jesus always, when he points out things to us like this, he gives us a better way forward. That our greatest source of approval shouldn't be others. It should be God, our Father. Return with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. And when you look at verse 1, the first thing Jesus says is, be careful or beware, it may say in your translations. And guys, when you're reading the Bible, if you're doing your morning devotion and you're reading and you hear Jesus say, beware or be careful, it should give us pause. And as you're reading, you should stop and say, Lord, whatever Jesus is about to say here, Lord, show me if this is true in my heart. And what does Jesus say? He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness and for other, others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The first thing I want to notice is we have a temptation in verses like this to read it and say, uh, do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And all we hear is, do not practice your righteousness. That's absolutely not what Jesus is saying here for us not to practice your righteousness. This is what it means to practice your righteousness. If you're a follower of Christ, when God looks down on you, he sees the perfection of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ, and that righteousness is yours. So my job as a discipleship pastor, when you hear discipleship, it's kind of a, a word like, what does it really mean? And this is how I define discipleship. is your process of being changed into Christ's likeness. Your process of being changed into what God already sees when he looks down on you because he sees his son. And what it means is to practice your righteousness. It is the habit of things you do on a regular basis, the tried and true practices of Christianity, not to gain anything. But if you were to look at a growing Christian who's growing into Christlikeness, what does the rhythms of their life look like? And these are the practices of righteousness. But he doesn't say don't practice it, don't practice your righteousness. He says do not do it to be seen by others. If anything, you should be doing these things, but examine your motivations for doing these things. Because your motivations are a deeper spiritual indicator than your actions are. Your motivations for doing these things are a deeper spiritual indicator than your actions are. Because it's possible for us to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Our temptation is that we want to look good rather than be good. Our temptation is we want to look good rather than actually be good. And what Jesus does is points out the danger of this by giving us three examples of practices of habits that were common in Jesus' day and that he expected for us to continue today. So look at verse 2, the first thing he says, so when you give to the needy, we already see that this is something Jesus expects us to be doing regularly. He just assumes that it's going to be part of our practice because he says, when you do it, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by others. 
before we go, I want, I want to real quick put a graphic on the screen for you. And what this graphic is, is a poll of non-Christians and his barriers to them of coming to faith. And number one is how could a good God allow evil? And number two is that Christians are hypocrites. Now, I point this out to you that this, is, this poll was done in 2018, that these are barriers for non-Christians to come to faith. And, th and this is what's amazing about this passage. The first person to call out the dangers of hypocrisy in the church wasn't someone who left the faith because of hypocrisy. It is the one who started the church. Jesus was warning us about the things that would be barriers to Christians coming to faith today. If you look in the passage, look, if, if you look at the passage, look in verse 2. He says, when you give to the needy, do not announce with trumpets, because this is how the hypocrites do it. In Jesus' time, the word hypocrites is not the way we think about it. What a hypocrite, when they heard this word, what they would have thought of is literal actors in a play. People that were putting on a show. People that were wearing masks and playing a part. And when Jesus used this, it's really probably one of the first times this Greek word was used like this. And he's given us the danger of this because the danger of putting on a show and wearing a mask, especially in church like this, if we wear the mask long enough, if we play the part long enough, we begin to believe that's who we truly are. There's a danger, but what Jesus says in this passage is, that if you are doing this, if you're giving to the needy, if you're putting on a show like the hypocrites do, if you're wearing a mask and you're doing this to receive the word of others, when you get the pat on the back, I hope you have a good memory because that memory of the pat is the only reward you're going to get. When you get that attaboy for giving to the needy, I hope you have a good nostalgic memory because that's the only reward you're going to get. But Jesus, like he always does, gives us the correct response. He says, don't do it like that. Instead, when you give to the needy, look in verse 3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. So your father who's in secret will reward you in secret. So Jesus gives us the correct response. He's saying that we should give in secret. Now, Jesus is not prohibiting that we should give to the needy in public. He's saying if you're doing it for these motivations, you should do it in secret where nobody sees. Because the heart of giving like this should be that even if no one sees, your Father in heaven sees. And that is enough. And even more than that, we don't give to the needy as followers of Christ out of pity or obedience. We give out of love. Because as followers Christ who are being transformed in his likeness, we've been given clear eyes to see the need around us and new hearts to respond to it. We've been given clear eyes and new hearts to see needs around it where we respond out of love, not out of duty. We're compelled to. That's why we say around here, love everyone always. And look at this quote from Augustine that defined what that love looks like. What does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten, hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrow of men. This is what love looks like. 
that we give to the needy because our hearts are compelled to compassion the way Christ was, and we respond to him. When Jesus says, give in secret, do not know your, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, I think a good way to see this is in Matthew 25. I'm going to read Matthew 25 to you really quickly, starting in verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you divided me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous, the righteous, when I said, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did, we, when did you invite you in? When did we clothe you? When, did we, when were you sick and we visited you? And this is what the king says. Truly I tell you that whoever did this for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. When we give to the needy, we're not giving out of pity. We're not giving out of duty. We're giving out of love because we are serving Christ himself and we are giving to God and because of God. So as we think about giving to the needy, let's think about this really practically. I'm going to give you practical. I said for a follower of Christ, these practices are, are regular rhythms for us. So for a follower of Christ, you'll see that a regular practice of giving looks like, for me, a regular practice, I give once a month. I give online here at Rolling Hills once a month. And when I do that, I know that a portion of those funds are going to meet needs. I know a portion of those funds are going to Justice and Mercy International that is giving to the needy and meeting needs internationally. I know a portion of those funds are going to Path Project to meet needs in Franklin Estates. I know a portion of that is going to Shower Up and 413 Strong needs around us. So when I give on this monthly rhythm, I know the portion of that is going to give to the needy. But when we're giving new hearts and new eyes to see needs around us, it doesn't end with that. We have this rhythm, but we also have open hearts and open minds to see needs around us. Like when I was talking to Path Project uh, a couple weeks ago, the need came up that they need a 15-passenger van to, to, great, to have a better ministry to the people in Franklin Estates. And I know that there's people in this room that hear that and beyond their monthly giving can make that happen today. Or when someone comes up to your window or comes up to you to downtown, we have open hearts and open minds to give those to those who are in need. And before I move on to prayer, I just wanna say one thing. We live in one of the wealthiest counties in all of the United States. Used to be the seventh wealthiest, and now it's the 11th wealthiest. And it's funny, all the rest of them around Washington, D.C., that's just weird. Um, but think about this. This is 100% believe this, that God is consolidating resources here in Williamson County, not so that we're remembered as one of the wealthiest counties in the United States, so we're remembered as one of the largest mobilizers of funds and people to end hunger, to end homelessness, to end lostness, and be a mobilizer of people and resources to the ends of the earth. That's what I believe. Let's move on to prayer. Look at verse 5. And you'll see this rhythm, Jesus, when you give, when you pray. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into a room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. So we have a temptation that when we're around others, when we pray, we're praying. We want to make sure people think that we, we're a good prayer. 
And sometimes we don't pray because we're afraid people won't think that. But when we pray and the motivation of our heart is to be approved by others, in essence, we are praying to them. If we're praying to be approved by others, in essence, we're praying to those people. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He stops and gives us the perfect template to pray. He says, pray in secret. And once again, he's not prohibiting public prayer. He's prohibiting public prayer to be seen by others. That if you are praying to be heard by others, it's better for you to go into a closet and just pray like that so that your Father can hear you. But then he gives us the template for prayer. Or you've heard it, the model prayer. And I remember the first time I heard the model prayer, I was playing high school football. I was ninth grade. I was on the team, and he, the coach gathered us up and said, hey, let's pray. And I was like, okay, I don't know much about this, but I'll pray. And he starts going, our Father in heaven. And everybody's reciting it with him. And I'm like, trespasses, the deaths, forgives, uh, amen, yes, yes. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, what is this? That coach is a great prayer. I thought he wrote that prayer. And then later on when I became a Christian, I read this, I was like, coach was a plagiarist. No, but, but really, I mean, it, it, there is a benefit of just reciting this prayer because we're reciting the words of Christ. But what Jesus is giving us is the heart of prayer. Look at the first verse of, of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Listen to this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones about this. I suggest that if you can say from your heart, whatever your condition, my father, if you can add to the our father, my father, from your personal relationship, in sense, your prayer is already answered. Because here's the deal. My kids have never gone up to somebody else and called him dad. Nobody's kids have ever come up to me and called me dad. We, if we can call him our father out of the depths of our relationship with him, with him, in a sense, our prayers are already answered. Because if my children need me, all they have to do is call out dad. And trust me, they do it frequently. Dad, dad, and I respond every time. I may stomp a little bit when I do it, but I respond because I'm their earthly father, but our, our father in heaven responds differently. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that type of access. Think about that. When we realize that prayer is that, we realize prayer is not something we should do. We say that a lot, that uh, reading the Bible, I should read the Bible. I should pray. But when you realize you have this access to the Father, we don't pray because we should. We pray because we can. Every time I go somewhere where there's free food, I eat it. You know why? Because I can. I don't know if I should, but I can and we have that type of access that we pray because we can. And real, once we realize this type of access, we don't just go to him when we have needs. We go to him because we have access. And then we realize prayer is not about getting things. Prayer is about getting God. And the blood of Jesus bought you that approval. Look at the next verse, hallowed be thy name. Really, in this, the essence of this is hallowed means to be set apart. So we live in a world where there is a war of names, where everyone's name is competing to be above all. What we're praying when we pray this is, Lord, let your name win the war of names. Let your name be above all. Look at verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth it is in heaven. You know, when you pray this prayer, when you say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth is in, is in heaven, the first thing that's most likely to change is our own heart. Because if we were real 
and we, our life, the picture of our life was put into prayer, it'd probably sound more like this. My kingdom come. My will be done on earth as it is in my mind. But as we continually pray this prayer, the Lord will change our heart. He will increasingly change our affections to his affections, our desires to his desires, our loves to his love, our longings to his longings. And the first thing that's most likely to change is our own heart. But also I would argue in this one line is every prayer you could ever possibly pray. So think about it for a second. What is the thing we pray about the most? Sickness? Work? A lost family member? Broken relationships? So when we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have to ask ourselves, what are we really praying here? So what does the Bible tell us is going on in heaven right now? We know from Scripture that there is no sickness in heaven. There are no broken relationships in heaven. That everyone is singing like we sang earlier in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This is what scripture teaches. So when we pray these things, what we're asking for is for heaven and earth to become one in those moments. Look what Andrew Murray says about this. We must begin to believe that God in the mystery of prayer has entrusted with us a force that can move the heavenly world and bring its power down to earth. We are praying for God to intervene and show us a glimpse of heaven in the here and now. We're asking for a blending of heaven and earth. So when we're praying for a broken marriage, we're saying, Lord, restore this relationship the way it will be restored one day in heaven. Lord, remove this sin out of my life the way it will be removed one day in heaven. Lord, take this sickness away the way it will be taken away in heaven one day. Lord, when we pray these prayers, we're praying for a blending of heaven and earth. And when we pray these deep type of prayers, we do not care who's looking. Because we're crying out with our hearts to when we pray for a friend who's in the hospital, who's fighting cancer, we're saying, Lord, open up the heavens and blend heaven and earth. And when we pray for this, we pray literally for Jesus to come and end all sickness and end all brokenness and end all Everything, because, but he waits. He waits out of grace. And because he waits, there's still work for us to do. That's why we go to Moldova. That's why we give to the needy, because we live as if the kingdom has already come in the here and the now. Look at verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. And when we pray this, it's usually in the context of the daily provision today. Give me my food for the day, Lord. I'm thankful that you gave it to me. And there is daily provision here, because there is a truth that no, not even a grain has passed through your hands that wasn't given to you by the love of the Father. It is his provision that gives that to you. But also on a deeper sense, when you hear bread, it's never just about bread. In John 6, you don't have to turn there. Let me just explain to you what happened. Jesus just got through giving bread to people, feeding the 5,000. He fed the 5,000. The people came to him and was like, hey, that was awesome. Can we have some more of that? They're like, in fact, didn't Moses give us bread from heaven? And Jesus just clarifies it for us. He says, guys, I am the bread of life. And when we pray, give us today our daily bread, in essence, we're praying, yes, Lord, give us provision for the day, but Lord, give us yourself. Be the bread of life for us today, and in Jesus, you are enough for today. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Another way to say this, and forgive us in the same way we forgive others. That's really hard. 
Forgive us in the same method and measure we forgive others. And really, what C.S. Lewis says about this is we are praying for our eyes to see others the way Christ sees us. Lord, let us forgive others in the same measure that you forgive us. And lead us not to temptation, verse 13, but deliver us from the evil one. We are praying for God to supernaturally keep us from being overcome. What this really means is being, not that the temptation won't come, but that we wouldn't be overcome by it. You know, when Jesus does for us, he, he never just leaves us, he never just leaves us without modeling what he tells us to do. And in Matthew chapter, where is it? Right there, Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, Jesus is in the garden. He's about to go through something really, really hard, and he is modeling the Lord's prayer for us, almost line by line, the heart of the prayer for us. He's there. He's about to go to the cross, and listen to the words of Jesus. He says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And a couple of verses after that, he tells the disciples to pray to not be overcome by temptation. He prays to his father, he prays his heart, and he prays for God's will to be done. Jesus gives us a model of how to pray through hard things, which is in essence is this. Father, change the situation or change my heart to see it the way you do. When we're praying through hard things, we pray, Father, change the situation or change my heart to see it the way you do. And, and for my life, two of the hardest prayers and most important prayers I've ever prayed for were for two of my sons. They were both born under medical distress and their life was at risk. And I prayed the same prayer for both of them. Lord, if it's in your will, please heal my son. In essence, my heart was, Father, change the situation or change my heart to see it the way you do. Or both. And in one of those situations, his name was Elijah, and he lived 15 minutes, and he died in my arms after birth. And the other one is six and loves for me to see him do things, and he needs my approval. But in both of those situations, God showed me a glimpse of the kingdom. Let's, let's move to the practical practice of prayer. What does prayer look like in a practical way? First uh, Thessalonians says, rejoice always, Pray continuously or pray without ceasing. Like, that's awesome. I should pray without ceasing. I should pray continually. Yes, 100% true. But it is really hard. This is just logic. It's really hard to pray without ceasing when you start the day without praying. It's really hard to pray without ceasing when you start the day without praying. And there's nothing magical about praying at the beginning of the day, but it is a tried and true habit of the Christian faith to start your day, to habitually practice prayer as soon as you wake up. And what you do, you're committing your whole day to the idea of give us this day our daily bread. You're committing your whole day to the idea that God is in control and I trust you. And then the continuous unceasing prayer just flows out of that. Let's look at fasting really quick. Verse 16 through 18. When you fast, so he expects us to fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do, for they defigure their face to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their, your reward. But then he gives us a practical way to fasting. And you know, when I, when I say give to the needy, we're like, yeah, I can do that. I want to do that out of my heart. I want to do that prayer. I, I want to do that. Fasting, eh, I don't know. It's probably the least used of all the spiritual disciplines of all the practices. Now, if I was up here and I told you, hey, there is great physical benefit to fasting. You could lose weight. Your digestive system will be better. It'll be awesome for you. You're like, oh, I'm interested. 
And then I switch, hey, there's also spiritual benefit. Oh, that seems weird. But there is physical benefit to be fasting, but I think the reason why we shy away from fasting is because we may not understand it the way God teaches fasting. So let me tell you what fasting is not. Fasting is not a hunger strike to make God move. It's a reminder that God is enough. God doesn't look down on us and say, man, I better move because if they, they may not eat. It's not a hunger strike to make God move. It is a method to remember that God is enough. Because fasting does not make God more attentive to our prayers. It makes us more attentive to God. It's not like, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Oh, they're fasting? Cool, let me listen. What it does is fasting, abstaining from food, is, takes away any distraction so that we can focus on God and realize that he is enough, that he is our daily bread. He is the bread of life. And even when the physical bread is not there, he is enough. So what does practical fasting look like? And I'm gonna challenge you. If you've never fasted before, I would challenge you to once a month, commit a day and say, for this period of time that you feel comfortable with, don't go straight to 48 hours of fasting. Pick a time, maybe half a day, whatever it is, and fast and pray and ask for God to be enough. And if you are fasting for spiritual, for physical benefit, if you're doing intermittent fasting, that's awesome. Don't waste it. If you're doing that, use that time to focus on the Lord. Don't just look at the clock for when you can eat again. Look at your Bible of who God is and who you are in Christ. Don't waste your fasting. And we're about to head to 40 days to Easter. In the 40 days leading up to Easter, we're going to be praying together as a church, and we're going to challenge you to fast. Whether it be one hour a week from something, something that's distracting you from God. It may be your phone. Ooh, I don't know. It may be technology in general. It may be TV. Whatever it is, we're asking you to pray and join together as a community, not so we're seen by others, so that as a community we can pray and receive God's fullness. So as we wrap all of this, the practices of giving to the needy, the practices of prayer, and the practices of fasting, what, at the end of each one of these passages, God says, your Father will reward you. So what is the reward? Our reward is God himself. When we give, we get to give to God and for God and take care of people as if they were God themselves in front of us. We get to pray. We get to talk to the Father. We receive the ability to speak with him and be with him and talk with him throughout the day. And in fasting, we get the ability to take away all other distractions and be simply in his presence. Let's pray. Father, as we pray, we, we call out our Father. But if there's anybody in this room, if there's anybody in this room today who cannot call out our Father because they do not have a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would compel their hearts here today to begin a relationship with you today, that we would talk to somebody after the service so we could talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with you, Father. 
And if there's anybody in this room, we've been going through the motions, we've been wearing the mask, we've been doing, we even come to church so, the, so other people make sure that we know that we're there. That, like, did Sally see me at church today? Did Billy see me at church today? I'm praying so other people hear my words. If anybody is here and they've been putting on a show, Lord, let us all take off the mask and truly be with you, Father. And let us with our whole hearts, everybody in this room, Know that Jesus, you are our daily bread and you are enough for today. Amen.